Welcome to the July 15th, 2021 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. Today, our studies include an analysis of thrombosis in pediatric patients with COVID-19, the predictive value of the CLL International Prognostic Index in monoclonal B-cell lymphocytosis, and RI0-stage CLL, and results from a Phase two trial in newly diagnosed multiple myeloma patients treated with frontline carfilzomib, lenalidomide, and dexamethasone with autologous stem cell transplant. Our first manuscript entitled, Rate of Thrombosis in Children and Adolescents Hospitalized with COVID-19 or MISC by Hilary Whitworth from the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia and colleagues, provides much-needed data on the incidence and risk of thrombosis in the pediatric population with COVID-19. During the emergence of SARS-CoV-2 in late 2019, severe pneumonia was a cardinal presentation in adult patients who also showed a proclivity toward thrombotic coagulopathy. Many patients had elevated levels of D-dimer and fibrinogen with mild thrombocytopenia, and mild prolongation of the prothrombin time. Studies in adults reported high venous thromboembolism rate, often occurring despite prophylactic anticoagulation. Relatively little is known about COVID-19-associated thrombosis in the pediatric population. Compared to adults, most children and adolescents with COVID-19 have minimal disease and many are asymptomatic. Children and adolescents are also uniquely affected by a post-infectious hyperinflammatory syndrome following SARS-CoV-2, termed multi-inflammatory syndrome in children, or MISC, that can include coagulopathy and thrombosis. As hospitalizations of children with COVID-19 increased, pediatric hematologists developed guidelines for thromboprophylaxis, but this guidance was based on the extrapolation of adult data and expert opinion, rather than being supported by the data of the incidence and risk factors for thrombosis in the affected pediatric population. The results of this study by Whitworth and colleagues provide important information to help fill the knowledge gap in this population. The primary objective of their investigation was to determine the incidence of thrombotic complications in hospitalized children and adolescents with COVID-19 or MISC. Additionally, they sought to evaluate risk factors associated with thrombotic events and describe the current practices for thromboprophylaxis in this group. They conducted a retrospective cohort study of consecutive children, ages 0 to less than 21 years of age, admitted between March 1, 2020 and August 15, 2020, with a positive SARS-CoV-2 PCR or a diagnosis of MISC. The study included seven pediatric hospitals in six U.S. states. They classified patients into one of three groups for analysis of thrombotic events, COVID-19, MISC, or asymptomatic SARS-CoV-2, who were patients admitted with an alternative diagnosis. In 814 patients, there were 20 with thrombotic events, including stroke. Patients with MISC had the highest incidence of thrombotic events, affecting 9 of 138 patients, or 6.5%, compared to 9 of 426 patients with COVID-19, or 2.1%. Thrombotic events occurred in only 2 of 289 children, with asymptomatic SARS-CoV-2, similar to rates previously reported in hospitalized children. 
In patients with COVID-19 or MISC, the majority of thrombotic events occurred in patients 12 years of age or older, and those with MISC had the highest rate of thrombosis at 19%. Notably, 71% of thrombotic events that were not present on admission occurred despite thromboprophylaxis, similar to adult reports. The risk for thrombotic events was higher for those with more severe disease, needing ventilatory support and ICU admission. Multivariable analysis identified the following factors highly associated with thrombosis, 12 years of age or older, cancer, presence of venous catheter, MISC. In patients hospitalized for COVID-19 or MISC, all-cause hospital mortality was 2.3%, but 5 of 18, or 28%, of patients with thrombotic events died. Most had comorbid conditions that were risk factors for thrombosis and contributed to mortality. Whitworth and colleagues note there are several limitations in their work, including that a significant proportion of the patients received inpatient and post-discharge thromboprophylaxis. Without this, it is possible that rates of thrombosis would have been higher. In addition, participating centers were large pediatric referral centers, and patients may have been more medically complex. Despite these limitations, the study findings, including a low rate of thrombotic events in children less than 12 years with COVID-19 or MISC, and identification of factors that increase thrombotic risk, such as age, central venous catheters, and cancer, may help inform future thromboprophylaxis strategies in pediatric centers. Clifford Takamoto, from St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee, notes this study provides much-needed data on thrombosis rates and risk for pediatric patients with COVID-19. He points out two additional important findings. First, although several comorbidities associated with severe disease in adults were not associated with thrombotic events in children, including obesity, cardiac disease, and sickle cell disease, the authors did find an increased risk of thrombotic events in African-American patients, reminding us that children are not immune to the racial disparities seen with this disease. And second, given the high incidence of thrombosis despite prophylaxis, as also seen in adults, more high-quality data are needed to develop and validate a robust risk assessment model to guide the optimal intensity and type of anticoagulation approaches. This will require large datasets, patient registries, and multi-institutional collaborations. Our next paper is entitled, The CLL International Prognostic Index, or CLL-IPI, Predicts Outcomes in Monoclonal B-Cell Lymphocytosis and RI0-CLL, by Samir Parikh, from the Mayo Clinic and colleagues in Rochester, Minnesota. The Chronic Lymphocytic Leukemia International Prognostic Index, or CLL-IPI, is a well-established prognostic score in CLL patients receiving chemoimmunotherapy. It was developed on the basis of data from eight Phase three studies and introduced in 2016. The index combines the parameters TP53 status, IGHV mutational status, serum beta-2 microglobulin concentration, clinical stage, and age with different weighting in a prognostic score. The CLL-IPI discriminates four prognostic subgroups with different five-year overall survival rates, resulting in different treatment implications. Although the CLL-IPI was originally developed with the intent to predict overall survival, it has also been shown to predict time-to-first therapy. 
There are limited data, however, regarding the utility of the CLL IPI in predicting time to first therapy and overall survival in patients whose only disease manifestation is a circulating B-cell clone, specifically those patients with RI0 CLL or with monoclonal B-cell lymphocytosis, or MBL. In this study, Parikh and colleagues sought to determine if the CLL IPI can have prognostic value in this group of patients and whether the absolute B-cell count should be incorporated as an additional factor to the CLL IPI to predict outcomes. To achieve this, the authors retrospectively identified 969 patients with RI0 CLL, or MBL, seen at the Mayo Clinic between January 2001 to October 2018, and ascertained and analyzed time-to-first therapy and overall survival. The median age was 64 years, with a range of 31 to 91, and 65% were men. After a median follow-up of 7 years, the risk of disease progression needing therapy was 2.9% per year in 415 patients with MBL and 5% per year for the 554 patients with RI0 CLL. 282 of 969 patients received therapy and 212 died. Among patients with low, intermediate, and high to very high risk CLL IPI risk groups, the estimated 5-year risk of time to first therapy was 13.5%, 30%, and 58% respectively. Of patients with MBL, 80% had a low-risk CLL IPI score, 28% had intermediate risk disease, and 10% had a high or very high risk score. The five-year risk of needing therapy among MBL in these three groups was 7%, 14%, and 40% respectively. Thus, a subset of MBL patients should likely be followed more closely for progressive disease. The group also performed a multivariable analysis of absolute B-cell count with individual factors of the CLL IPI and found that the absolute B-cell count was associated with shorter time-to-first therapy and shorter overall survival. The overall survival of the entire cohort of both groups of patients was similar to age and sex-matched general population of Minnesota. Although RI0 CLL patients with high and very high-risk CLL IPI scores had significantly shorter overall survival. In summary, when used at time of initial diagnosis, the CLL IPI is a robust prognostic tool for predicting the risk of progressive disease needing therapy and overall survival in individuals with MBL or with RI0 CLL. Although the utility of CLL IPI to stratify overall survival may be evolving in the novel therapy era. The results of this study demonstrate its ability to predict time from diagnosis to first treatment, an endpoint not impacted by therapy in a large cohort of patients whose only manifestation of disease is a circulating clonal lymphocyte population. As Nadine Kutsch from University of Cologne in Germany notes, in an accompanying commentary, this report shows for the first time the CLL IPI can predict time to first diagnosis and overall survival in patients with MBL and RI0 stage CLL. This index might prove to be a very useful tool for the management of these watch-and-wait patients. However, the treatment landscape of CLL has changed dramatically in recent years with the introduction of novel oral inhibitors. Against this background, the CLL IPI might be outdated, and Kutch notes that other scoring approaches have recently been introduced in the future. She suggests that the CLL IPI should be reevaluated as soon as more mature data on first line treatment with oral inhibitors are available. 
Listeners, CME questions for this article are available on the Blood website at cme.bloodjournal.org. Our final topic is a study entitled Upfront Carfilzomib, Lenalidomide, Dexamethasone with Transplant in Multiple Myeloma Patients, the IFM-KRD Final Results, by Muriel Roussel from the IUC Oncopole in Toulouse, France, and fellow colleagues. Frontline therapy in symptomatic newly diagnosed multiple myeloma patients has been highly modified during the last decades, but high-dose therapy accompanied by autologous stem cell transplant, or ASCT, is still standard of care for eligible patients. Combination therapy with proteasome inhibitors and immunomodulatory drugs has expanded treatment options, improving response rates and survival outcomes. Thalidomide or lenalidomide plus bortezomib and dexamethasone in the transplant setting have been the standards of care in newly diagnosed myeloma patients. However, as responses can deepen with time, Recent investigations have attempted to build on the success of these regimens to include prolonging induction and or consolidation phases and extended use of lenalidomide instead of thalidomide. Carfilzomib is a second-generation, non-neurotoxic proteasome inhibitor approved in relapsed refractory myeloma patients in combination with lenalidomide and dexamethasone. It has also demonstrated promising results for both safety and efficacy in a phase 1-2 trial of newly diagnosed myeloma patients. Therefore, Roussel and colleagues hypothesize that switching from bortezomib to carfilzomib could improve stringent complete response rate, or SCR, without increasing toxicity. They conducted a phase 2 study looking at the safety and efficacy of a total of 8 cycles of carfilzomib, lenalidomide, and dexamethasone, a combination referred to as KRD in transplant-eligible newly diagnosed multiple myeloma patients. This multi-center, single-arm, open-label study was conducted at 10 centers in France, with enrollment between March and November 2014. The median age at start of therapy was 56 years. Patients received four cycles of KRD as induction and four cycles as consolidation, followed by a year of lenalidomide maintenance. All patients proceeded to ASCT after the first four cycles of KRD. The investigator's primary objective was stringent complete response, or SCR, at completion of consolidation. 46 patients enrolled, 21% of whom had adverse cytogenetics. Among the 42 evaluable patients after consolidation, 26, or 61.9%, were in SCR. Of these, 92.6% had undetectable minimal residual disease, or MRD, by flow cytometry and 63% by next-generation sequencing. The median time to complete response was 10.6 months. Almost 70% of patients had undetectable MRD at some point. With a median follow-up of 60.5 months, 21 patients progressed and 10 died, 7 for multiple myeloma. The median progression-free survival was 56.4 months. Four patients discontinued treatment due to toxicities. There were no KRD-related deaths. 56 serious adverse events were reported in 31 patients. There were 8 cardiovascular events, including heart failure, pulmonary thromboembolism, and deep vein thrombosis. The most frequent grade 3 to 4 adverse events were hematological at 74% and infectious at 22%, which were predictable and manageable.
The authors conclude that eight cycles of KRD treatment produced fast and deep responses in transplant-eligible newly diagnosed multiple myeloma patients. The safety profile was considered acceptable, but the investigators noted that patients should be closely monitored for cardiovascular adverse events and given appropriate antithrombotic prophylaxis. Jeremy Err and Simon Harrison from Peter McCallum Cancer Center and Royal Melbourne Hospital in Australia provide thoughtful commentary on the study entitled, KRD, The New Kid in the French Myeloma Induction Class. They note that the rate and duration of the response were impressive, with a manageable safety profile. They also comment that several other Phase 1-2 trials have similarly demonstrated the feasibility and safety of KRD with ASCT in the treatment of newly diagnosed multiple myeloma. Given the success of triplet induction and ASCT, a current question is whether the addition of anti-CD38 monoclonal antibodies can further improve depth and duration of response and translate to improved survival, obviating the need for ASCT. This is being addressed in several ongoing trials. Err and Harrison further point out that the utility and achievement of MRD negativity during maintenance therapy has yet to be well-defined. Can patients with sustained MRD-negative stringent complete response cease maintenance therapy without risk of early relapse? A risk and MRD adaptive approach is the intensification or de-escalation of treatment is still under investigation and will help guide future clinical decision-making. For CME questions, a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries related to this podcast, please go to www.bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast. Thank you for listening.